Good morning, gentlemen. Welcome to 2 Samuel, chapter 2. We appreciate David Bowen teaching for us last week, and we saw that uh, in God's providence, both Saul and Jonathan died, and David deeply grieved uh, his loss. Jonathan, his best friend, and Saul, his king, even though his king had been trying to take him out for years. We're going to come to four chapters today. Once again, I don't know, uh, it seems like lately we're taking these massive portions of scriptures, but we're going to race through them and get the main point that the author of 2 Samuel is giving us, uh, which really is that God established his, his kingdom uh, no matter what. He keeps his promises no matter what. You know, after all these years that David's been pursued and he's been evading uh, the armies of Saul, now finally Saul's dead and you would say, okay, good, David's going to take the throne and now it's going to be smooth sailing. But you got another thought coming. And it's that way so often in this life. You know, you, you have one victory and now you're just you're facing another battle right away and so it is with David. But we're going to see that no matter what comes his way, God is always going before him. And of course, that's the way it was with the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about all the opposition he faced, all the impediments he faced to performing the will of God in his life. And God saw him through all the way to the cross and the resurrection the ascension. Same thing with the apostles. They faced amazing opposition. So do you. And God's going to keep his promise to you no matter what occurs uh, in your life or outside of your life. And let's begin by looking at uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And we're going to start by noticing that, that God hears our prayers and guides us. And let's look at what David does immediately after the death of Saul and Jonathan. Verse 1, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your Lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Okay, let's pause right there. God hears our prayers and guides us. Notice the first thing David does. David inquired of the Lord. One of the big differences between David and Saul is that Saul did not inquire of the Lord. He chose every other way to try to figure out what to do in his life. David, Saul didn't have a heart for the Lord and eventually Saul was cut off from inquiring of the Lord. But David, on the other hand, with all of his foibles, all of his foolishness, all of his sins, and there, there's plenty of it to go around, David inquired of the Lord. And so often, you know, in our lives, we'll wait until there's nothing left to do. We're at the absolute end of our rope. We've lost 
all of our options. We have no other ideas. And we say, well, I guess I'll just pray about it. David starts there. Doesn't wait until it's the last resort. It's his first resort. Gentlemen, this is what it means to be walking with the Lord. It becomes your first resort to consult with Him. Now, what does it mean for David to inquire of the Lord? Well, first of all, it begins with his heart. Remember, our whole study is David, a man after God's own heart. And the heart must be one that really wants to know the Lord's pleasure above all other things. That's where it starts. What do you want out of this situation? Whether it's a happy situation or an unhappy situation. What's your ambition? What are you trying to accomplish? It starts with the heart that really wants to accomplish what pleases the Lord. And what gives you a heart like that? Well, God gives you a heart like that. God makes, pledges Himself to you. God defends you and protects you and provides for you. And out of deep gratitude that is enabled you by the Holy Spirit, you want to give your whole life to the Lord. That's where it starts. So there's no spiritual discipline you can impose on your life to make you one who inquires of the Lord if you don't have a heart for it. So if you don't have a heart for it, that's the first thing to ask God for. God, give me a heart that wants your pleasure above all things. That's where it starts. Secondly, it, starts with a con it, it continues into a conversation. Because you really want to know what the ple pleasure of the Lord is, you ask Him. So you just simply ask. You have not because you ask not, says the Bible. So we ask the Lord, Lord, please guide me. And, of course, you'll remember that later on in Solomon's life, he is asked what he wants, and he says, Lord, above all things I want wisdom, because I'm like a child. I don't know how to go in and go out. And the Lord was very pleased that he didn't ask for more wealth or more sexual pleasure, and then the Lord ends up giving him a whole bunch of both of those, uh, more than Solomon should have had, as a matter of fact, uh, for his own good. But Solomon asked for wisdom. That was his first request. Here, David is asking the Lord for guidance. Same thing, asking him for wisdom. And I'm sure David taught Solomon that, and then Solomon taught his sons that. Seek the Lord. Inquire of the Lord. Talk to Him. Ask Him. So you have, first of all, the heart that has to be shaped after His will. Secondly, you begin the conversation and ask Him to help you and guide you even today, no matter what the circumstances. Thirdly, then you consult with the means through which He communicates His will to you. You consult the means by which He communicates His will to you. Ask Him, and then you consult the means by which He communicates to you. Now, in David's day, most scholars believe that when David inquired of the Lord, you know, he would have gone to Samuel and asked his advice, but now he probably goes to Abiathar the priest and asks for wisdom and guidance from the Lord through the priest Abiathar. That's probably the way it worked. Well, what about in our day? Well, in our day, we have the Bible. And gentlemen, if you will go to the Lord with a heart that wants to know His will and you ask for His guidance and you pray that He'll lead you to the right portion of the Scriptures to discover this and you go reading and studying, you will find that the Lord guides you. I mean, isn't it every time we get together to study the Bible, somebody in this room is saying, wow, I just the light turned on for me. I, I have a situation and here's the Word of God as it applies to that. Now, others of you who don't have that uh, epiphany experience on, on a given Thursday morning, here's what you're doing. You're storing up the Word so that when you face circumstances next month or a year from now, you've been storing up the Word in your heart and you know where to go in the Bible and to consult Him. And that's where you find His will is in the Scriptures. 
Well, even having the scriptures today, we still go to wise people. So we also go to brothers who we believe are godly men, perhaps men who have had experience in the areas where we want advice. We go to someone who's either experienced what we're going through or someone who we think has wisdom to help us through that circumstance. And we look for how they apply the Word of God in that situation. Why? Because we want to know what pleases the Lord. That's what's driving the whole conversation. We talk to the Lord because we really want to know. We search out in the Word and through wise brothers because we really want to know what would please the Lord. That's what David did. Now, we're going to see that the, the main character, of course, in 2 Samuel 2 through 5 is the same main character throughout the whole Bible. That's God. He's the, he's the champion here, and we'll give him glory for that. But notice that in his champion work, he regenerates people like you and me and gives hearts to men like you and me so that we will inquire of him. And he works through people who inquire of the Lord. Ask him. Ask, and he will answer. You know, seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Because everyone who asks uh, will receive an answer. And everyone who seeks will find. And everyone who knocks, the door will be open for him. That's what Jesus said. So God hears our prayers and guides us. And he guides us, uh, A, verses 1 through 4a, he guides us where to go. David inquired of the Lord and said, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord gives him an answer. He says, go to Hebron. And of course, that was, of course, it was God's answer, and it was a very wise answer. Why, why was it so wise? Well, because all the patriarchs, Abraham and his wife Sarah, Isaac, his wife Rebekah, uh, Jacob, his wife Rachel, they're all buried right there in Hebron. So it was a legacy city. It was a little village, but it was a very important place theologically. It was the place where the patriarchs had been buried, the patriarchs to whom God had made promises that that land would belong to his people. And God says, David, go right there to the historical headquarters. Go right there to the place that means so much to, to Judah and all of Israel. And that's exactly what David did. And it was a wise thing to do. And then notice also David inquires what to do. And God shows him what to do. In verse 4b, you see that he was told that it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul. Now, look on your map on page 545. Now, see where Hebron is down there? It's marked with a star. That's the capital of Judah. And God told David to go there to be anointed king. And then look at Jabesh-Gilead up in the northeast of there. You see the area that's called Ishbosheth. That's the area that Ishbosheth temporarily ruled. And you see where Jabesh Gilead is? We don't know exactly where it is, but we think it's right there uh, on the Jabbok River, just north of the Jabbok River. And uh, the, it was the people of Jabesh Gilead who went up to, look, keep looking at your map, if you go northwest from Jabesh Gilead, you see Bet Shean. And it was the men of Jabesh Gilead who went to Bet Shean, got the body of Saul, and buried it. And David said to them, I commend you for this. You showed respect for your king. You took care of his remains. You showed him dignity. And David communicates this to them to express his affection and commendation for them. Now, why was this so wise? Why was the Lord helping him with this? Because 
the northern kingdom was not David's natural tribe. Uh, the, the, this is Saul's territory up there. David was from Bethlehem. He was, a, he was from the tribe of Judah. So the tribe that would naturally want him to be the next king were the Judahites. And Hebron's the capital. So David starts in the most friendly place of all through God's wisdom. He knows how to do this. This is political uh, shrewd, shrewdness. He goes to Hebron. God guides him there to be, to be anointed king. And then he communicates with those who might not so be so eager for him to be king. Why? Because they had been ruled by Saul, and Saul was a Benjaminite. And many of them were Benjaminites and Ephraimites and other tribes that Saul had ruled. And they were more inclined to want to follow Saul and Saul's dynasty. So David begins to communicate with them right away. David doesn't become defensive, or he doesn't go attack them, or he doesn't shy away because he's afraid. No, like a real gentleman and a political astute leader, he goes and communicates with them and sends a very um, diplomatic letter to them. Now, let's look and see what happens after God gives David initial guidance. We're going to look through, through verse 2-8, through the rest of chapter 5, all the way through 2, 3, 4, and 5. And what we're going to see here in this whole section is that God keeps His promises. So David inquires of the Lord, and that's wonderful. But what's even more wonderful is that God keeps His promises. We'll see how amazing this is. He keeps His promises through all kinds of adversity, and He keeps His promises through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So you may think that God's promises have been forgotten by God because it's been so long uh, since He's carried them out. For example, when is Jesus coming back, for heaven's sakes? He told us 2,000 years ago, Jesus is going to be coming back. Where is he? Remember this. A thousand years are like a day with the Lord. And so it's just been, last, it's just been yesterday since Jesus was ascended in the Lord's time. And here you had a promise to Abraham 800 years before this. 800 years. And now God is working out the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham 800 years before. So don't lose heart. Don't think that God has forgotten. You may have even forgotten. He's never forgotten one word that He promises to His people. Now let's pick up with 2.8, and I want to read all the way through 3.5, and we're going to notice that God keeps His promises through afflictions from disobedient believers. God keeps His promises through afflictions from disobedient believers. All right, let's begin with 2.8. But Abner... The son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. At the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah, was seven years and six months. Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanam to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zeruiah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young man arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number twelve for Benjamin. And Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, 
and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his spear in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazarim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was, the, was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai, that would be the brothers of Asahel, pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Giah on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight any more. And Abner and his men went all that night through the Arabah, they crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Asahel. For the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. And they took up Asahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David at Hebron. His firstborn was Ammon of Ahinoam of Jezreel, and his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur, and the fourth Adonijah, the son of Haggath, and the fifth Shephatiah, the son of Abital, and the sixth Ethraim of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Okay. God keeps his promises through the afflictions from disobedient believers. And here you have the kingdom of Israel in the north and Abner, their commander, who is going to be causing problems. Now, notice in verse 8, we're given these words, but Abner. Who is Abner? Well, it says he's the son of Ner. Who is Ner? Ner is Saul's daddy's brother. You with me? So that makes Abner first cousin to Saul. So you get it. Abner's in the dynasty. He is royalty. He's a cousin, like Prince Andrew or someone. So now Abner is saying, uh, 
look, uh, let's, let's defend ourselves. Let's not give up this kingdom. Let's not capitulate so quickly. Because, of course, he's a proud man. He's an avaricious man. He wants to hang on to the rule of his house. Now, we know Jonathan would never have done this. We're going to see that Ishbosheth, one of Jonathan's half-brothers, is very willing to do it because Abner, the commander, the, the five-star general, is the one who's leading the whole way. Now, notice how this develops. In verses 8 through 11, you see a conspiracy. And this conspiracy is shown when we are told uh, in verse uh, 11, um, I'm sorry, down to um, uh, look down further, and you'll see that um, Abner, verse 12, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out. So Abner is the one who's conspiring. And then secondly, in verses 12 through 17, he's the one who's agitating. He's the one who starts the fight. Now, if you look at your map, once again, you see Mahanam, where the capital of Ishbosheth's kingdom is. And they are going down to Gibeon. And you see where Gibeon is? It's at the bottom of that green portion right near Jerusalem. So you see what this is? This is an agitation. It's just like when the Russian troops go near the border of Ukraine. Well, guess what? It won't be long before you'll find those same troops in Ukraine, will it? So when Putin just moves his troops to the border, well, you're going to suspect trouble. Well, same thing with Joab. He gets words through, through, through reconnaissance that Abner is bringing troops down to Gibeon, for heaven's sakes, right there on the border of the tribe of Judah. So what does he do? He sends his men up there just to, just to put them on the border to challenge or to show uh, Abner this is not going to be an easy fight if you think you're going to invade Judah and take over Judah. So he goes up to the pool. So they're being agitated. Then in verses 18 through 23, you see that there's actually bloodshed. And this bloodshed is in several ways. First of all, Abner says, why don't we just let some of our men fight? Well, they do. And they all kill each other. But David's men kill more than Abner's men do, we're told. Uh, and then you'll notice further bloodshed. Asahel, who is Joab's the commander, David's commander, his brother Asahel pursues Abner. He's and Asahel's quick as a gazelle. And he won't, he won't let up. And Abner tells him, hey, bug off, man. You can rip off one of my soldiers and go on back, but stop following me. And Asahel didn't, so he took the back of his sword and just ran it right through him and killed him. More bloodshed. And then you have continual fighting between the men. More bloodshed. And you get to the end of the chapter, and we already saw that uh, David lost 19 men, and Abner lost 360 men. Lots of bloodshed. And then there's not only conspiracy and agitation and bloodshed, but there's hypocrisy. If you look at verse 26, uh, Joab, of course, is trying to avenge the death of his own brother. So he gets his other brother, uh, Abishai, and they decide to go pursue Abner themselves. And Abner comes up with this great speech that actually saves some lives. But it's, look how hypocritical it is in verse 26. Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? 
He's saying, Joab, do you want to just create more destruction? As though Abner hadn't been destroying people all day long. And then he says to him, how long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their family, their brothers? As though Abner had been acting like a brother all this time. So it's just total hypocrisy. And this is the kind of opposition that God's people face sometimes within our own family. So David's first opposition is coming from God's people who are uniting themselves behind a wicked leader. It's unbelievable when you look at this. I mean, after all that David's been through for all these years, now the church is going to resist him, and they do. Let's, let's skip the, the next point. I have defeat there, but let's just skip that. It really belongs in the next, in the next category. Those are the afflictions that David is facing. What about God's answers? Well, in verse 17 and in verses 29 through 32, we saw that there is a military victory that God gives David. David grows stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grows weaker. Gentlemen, can I tell you something? The house of Christ is growing stronger and stronger and stronger, and the house of the hypocrites is growing weaker and weaker and weaker. And throughout history, God is accomplishing His purposes. He's showing you right here with David. He's taking up for His man. And when you're a man after God's own heart, He's taking up for you. Now, in David's case, of course, we can see cause and effect in David's own lifetime. Sometimes with us, we won't see the final cause and effect until the last day when Jesus comes back. And that's when all the, everything, all justice is meted out. And everything is made right. But that day's coming. No matter how many hundreds or thousands of years, God will never forget His promise to you. You will see justice. And David saw it in God's answer in military victory. You'll have a military victory. Military victory. Because our commander will come on a white horse, we're told in Revelation 19, with a sword out of his mouth, and he will slay the wicked. And everyone inside and outside the church who has been opposing the kingdom of God and afflicting you, they will be slain. So we must feel sorry for those who oppose Christ and His people because they're the ones who are going to face the ultimate judgment. So there's a victory. Then let's look at, let's read uh, verses uh, 6 through 30 in chapter 3 and pick up the rest of this story. While there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, verse 6, Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head of Judah? To this day I keep showing steadfast love to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not given you into the hand of David. And yet you charge me today with a fault concerning a woman. God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not accomplish for David what the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, 
Give me my wife Michael, for whom I paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband Paltiel, the son of Laish. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Bahurim. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. And Abner conferred with the elders of Israel, saying, For some time past you have been seeking David as king over you. Now then bring it about. For the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke to Benjamin, and then Abner went to to tell David at Hebron all that Israel and the whole house of Benjamin thought good to do. When Abner came with twenty men to David at Hebron, David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I will arise and go and will gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has let him go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he has gone? You know that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. When Joab came out from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sirah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel his brother. Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are forever guiltless before the Lord for the blood of Abner the son of Ner. May it fall upon the head of Joab and upon all his father's house. And may the house of Joab never be without one who has a discharge or who is leprous or who holds a spindle or who falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai his brother killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death in the battle at Gibeon. And then look at chapter 4, verse 1. When Ishbosheth, Saul's son, heard that Abner had died at Hebron, his courage failed, and all Israel was dismayed. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of raiding bands. The name of the one was Banna, and the name of the other was Rechab. Sons of Remon, a man of Benjamin from Beeroth, for Beeroth who is counted part of Benjamin. The Beerothites fled to Gittim and have been sojourners there to this day. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled, and she held in her haste. He fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. Now the sons of Remon, the Beerothite, Rechab and Baana, set out, and about the heat of the day they came to the house of Ishbosheth as he was talking, uh, taking his noonday rest. And they came into the midst of the house as if to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Baana, his brother, escaped. When they came into the house, as he lay on his bed in his bedroom, they struck him and put him to death and beheaded him. They took his head and went by way of the Arabah all night and brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron. And they said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. The Lord has avenged my lord the king this day on Saul 
and on his offspring. Let's pause right there. Now notice that God's answers are, first of all, the military victory, but secondly, conflict among the adversaries. Notice the conflict between, if we back up to chapter 3 that we read, the conflict between Abner and Ishbosheth. So one way in which God works judgment on those who oppose us is they start fighting each other. And Abner takes a concubine. Now you know the significance of that in the Middle East especially. If a man takes part of the harem of a king, he is assuming that he is the successor. Nobody takes the king's wives or concubines unless the king dies and then the one who takes his concubines, takes his harem, is the next king. So it's completely inappropriate for a military commander to take a woman out of the harem of the, of the king. And so Ishbosheth asks the natural question, what you doing? Why'd you take that woman? And then Abner gets incensed and indignant. I've protected you all these days. I've set you up as a king. Now look at you, arguing over a woman. That's Abner. So you find that God has them uh, in conflict. And because of that, Abner then threatens Ishbosheth. Get this Abner was the one who propped up Ishbosheth in the first place so that Abner could be cousin to the king and have all the power he wanted. And now when Ishbosheth calls his hand on one wrong deed he did, he's now going to betray Ishbosheth completely. So if Abner, who knew, we saw this in the text, he knew that David was the anointed king. If Abner will oppose David when he knows he is the anointed king, of course he'll do anything to anybody else. He's a wicked man. He's a dishonest man. He's a, he's a selfish man. And he shows that in his relationship with Ishbosheth. And then he goes and works a deal with David. And hands over the nation of Israel to David without the king's permission. I mean, it's just an amazing thing that is happening among David's enemies. And it'll happen with your enemies too. They'll be thrown into total confusion. And in their wickedness in opposing you and Christ and the church, they're going to oppose everybody, including themselves. And they'll one day just self-destruct. And sometimes you can see it in this life. When you oppose the truth of God, you'll oppose anything. If you have the gall to stand up to God and spit in His face, you'll spit in anybody's face. And so you're just leading a life that leads to destruction. That's exactly what's happening with our adversaries. And notice that uh, not only is there conflict uh, there, but in verses 12 through 21, we saw that there's peace with enemies. David wisely allows Abner to sue for peace. Abner's being totally expedient. It's not out of a desire to exalt the Lord or his anointed one David. It's just out of his own self-interest. But he works a deal. And David, you noticed, required only one thing, and that is that he get his wife Michael back. And this may look very cruel. You know, Michael had been married to her second husband now for several years. And David says he wants his wife back. Well, this is Mideast tradition in David's time. Uh, you know, in Deuteronomy 24, it says that if you divorce your wife, uh, you cannot marry her again after she's been married to somebody else. But in this case, it was Mideast practice everywhere, that when a woman was taken from you violently, 
kidnapped or taken from your home, you could go back and recapture her even if she had been in another man's house. That's what David is doing here. He's just simply claiming justice. He was given Michael. Saul took her away. He says, give her back. And that also is a political move. And David's really good at sexual politics. And he's basically saying, that woman, the daughter of Saul, is to come back over here and be my wife. And you notice in European dynasties, you'd have a prince marry a princess. You know, an a English prince would marry a Spanish princess. And you have more opportunity to bring peace between Spain and England. Same thing here. David's saying, bring that woman back here. We're going to unite the kingdom. So it's, it's a political move as well as a move of love. And, of course, we'll find in the next chapters that Michael has some problems herself that David has to address. But uh, there is peace with the enemies that Abner offered. So David's a diplomat. He's not stupid. Abner's offering the kingdom. Abner can deliver the kingdom. And David agrees. But then notice in the other verses that we read that there's not only peace with enemies, but there's the elimination of the enemies. Joab is incensed that David has made a deal with Abner. And he's incensed because he says to David, you notice the words he uses, he says, um, where am I? He says, David, verse 25, you know, this is chapter 3, verse 25, you know that Abner came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing. So Joab, David's commander, says to David, David, come on, you know better than that. You know that Abner is a deceitful man. He's only coming here to pretend to make peace with you so that he can find out everything about your defenses, everything about your resources, everything about you. He's just spying. And he's setting you up to be defeated later. He's just lying to you, just like the Germans. just lies to you. Makes a treaty. He has no intention of keeping it. But we also know that Joab is still royally ticked off with Abner because he killed his brother. And so Joab, his real motive, Joab is deceitful as well. Joab's real motive is to wreak revenge on Joab, on Abner's life. And the last thing Joab wants is for David and Abner to be making a deal. So Joab, without David's knowledge, sends a message to Abner and says, Hey, come on back. Uh, we need to talk to you for just a moment. Abner's been given amnesty. He's been given safe passage. That's what it means to leave with peace. He's been guaranteed security so that he can get back to Mahanaim safely. So he's assuming he's still under that treaty of peace with David. And the messengers are simply saying, David wants to consult with you again. So he goes back to the city gates and Abner, I mean, Joab takes him aside and kills him. I mean, com completely uh, wicked. But notice this. When you're dealing with wickedness, wickedness is going to face its own wickedness. And wicked people will destroy wicked people. And you'll still be standing. And that's the way it's going to go at the last day. And you can begin to see how it works out even now. That if you stand with the Lord, you believe in what's right, you do what's right, God is going to be your defender. You don't need to defend yourself. And oftentimes you'll find other people just wiping each other out, and that's exactly what happens here. That Abner, who had the gall to oppose the Lord's anointed, gets taken out. Notice the same thing with Ishbosheth. Here's a weak man 
Here, the author of Samuel mentions Mephibosheth, who was lame, to say, let's look at, the, let's look at Saul's sons. Jonathan died. Mephibosheth is lame. Ishbosheth is emotionally lame, and he's the, but he's the only one who can serve. So Abner goes to him and props him up as king. He's a weak man. And you see what happens. They Rechab and Baaneah, they go into the room of Ishbosheth while he's lying on his bed and stab him. Once again, David never did that with Saul. David would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. But wicked people will do it to other wicked people. And these two people, Rechab and Baana, they just simply wanted a place in David's kingdom. They saw the handwriting on the wall. Joab was making a deal. Ishbosheth was going to be destroyed. Well, we'll get credit for destroying him. Take his head to David. We'll be exalted. We'll have a special place in David's royal court. It was all selfish, wicked stuff. The point, though, here for now, notice that God is dealing with your enemies. It's all wickedness. There's no anything proper about it. But he's taking care of David's enemies, the enemies of the anointed. He eliminates them. Now, look at verses, uh, verse 22 of chapter 3. And we're going to see um, that we also are afflicted by our allies. So we're not only afflicted by those in the church that turn against you and are really wicked hypocrites, but you're also opposed by people who are even trying to do you a favor because they do it with wrong motives and they do it the wrong way. So even people trying to help you end up afflicting you. You ever had that problem? You know, Lord, thanks for these friends you gave me. I mean, yeah, they're getting me in more trouble than my enemies get me into. And I know you've all had that. And, and maybe at times we've been those friends who are trying to help and we just do it in the wrong way. Well, you can see that the afflictions are, first of all, the angry violence of friends. In verses 22 through 30, we read that. The angry violence of Joab. He treacherously murders Abner. He lies to Abner, who had free passage. He presumes upon David. And under the pretense of protecting David, he vastly complicates David's life. Why? Why was this so terrible for David? Well, because when Joab murders Abner, then all of Israel is saying, yeah, looky there. Mm-hmm. We see what David's up to. He promises our commander safe passage. And our commander went to him to make a deal so that we could have a united kingdom. What does David do? He has him wiped out. And it would be very hard to convince anybody in Israel that David wasn't behind that. So Joab pretends to be on David's side, but he's really working on his own vengeance, but he royally complicates David's life by the way that he handled this Abner situation. Secondly, the angry violence of strangers. And this, of course, are those who took the life of Ishbosheth, Rechab, and Baana. These are strangers to David, but they pretend to be his friends. And once again, they're royally complicating David's life. 
Would anybody in Israel in the northern kingdom think that David didn't have anything to do with Ishbosheth's murder? I mean, when, uh, when President Diem in Vietnam was assassinated in the early 60s, didn't everybody know the CIA was behind it? I mean, it was obvious. We were wanting to eliminate a weak leader in Vietnam, so South Vietnam, so that South Vietnam could be militarily stronger. Everybody knew the United States was behind it. That's always the way people think, and most of the time they're right. So these two guys had vastly complicated the life of David in the unrighteous taking of the life of a weak king, Ishbosheth. So even when our friends and our strangers want to be our allies, they just make life more complicated when they don't do it the way the Lord wants it done. And that was David's problem. Now, what's God's answer to that? Well, look at verse 31 in chapter 3 and see how David handles this assassination of Abner by Joab. Look what David does. Verse 31, Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and put on sackcloth and mourn before Abner. So he's saying, Joab, you killed him. Now you put on your mourning clothes. You're going to the funeral. And you're going to be right up front. And everybody's going to see you at the funeral mourning Abner's life. What? I'm not mourning Abner's life. Yes, you are. Or you're not going to be my commander anymore. You're going to the funeral. So he gets him to go to the funeral. Tear your clothes. Put on sackcloth. And King David followed the bier. They buried Abner at Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king lamented for Abner, saying, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet were not fettered. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. Then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was yet day. But David swore, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them, as everything that the king did pleased all the people. So all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's will to put to death Abner the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I was gentle today, though anointed king. These men, the sons of Zeruiah, are more severe than I. The Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Now notice God's answer, that we bring justice with our friends. This was very difficult for David. Joab was his commander. Joab was his general. Joab was the one who was going to defend him and take his forces into battle. I mean, the last man you want to cross is Joab. But would you notice the contrast? Abner gets threatened. I'm, I'm sorry. Ishbosheth gets threatened by Abner. And he backs down because he's intimidated. And if you're afraid of men, if you're afraid to do what's right because someone seems more powerful around you, you've just signed your own death warrant. David says, I don't care what Joab does, truth is going to be administered here. I'm going to condemn the behavior of one of my best friends. And I'm going to face the consequences, whatever Joab decides to do. But I'm going to say publicly that Joab acted wickedly. And I'm going to say publicly that I, the king, had nothing to do with this, and Joab did this on his own. Now, some scholars say 
David should have had Joab put to death or should have taken him out of the, his administration. Maybe that's true. Maybe didn't, David didn't go as far as he should have, but he went a whole lot further than most people do. Most people, when they're building their personal dynasty, only have one value by which they measure their friends. And that is, are you loyal to me personally? And when you do that, you have abandoned the kingdom of God. The value that we're looking for is, are you loyal to the King of Kings? Are you loyal to the Lord? And if you're loyal to the Lord, I'll consider that loyalty to me. And that's the way David was operating. It was not the way that Ishbosheth was operating. So David goes to the funeral and he gives the eulogy. And it's, it's, since he's a musician he's and he's an artist, it happens to be a poem that he shares at the funeral. He refuses to eat and he's deeply sorrowy, sorry and he leads the entire nation of Judah in grief over Abner's death. And then he even says privately, that this was a good man. Wow. That's some kind of answer that God gives David, gives him wisdom because David's seeking the Lord's will. Notice also in chapter 4, verse 9. Let's turn there and look at that. After they brought the head to David of Ishbosheth, look at verse 9. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Beerothite, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life out of every adversity, when one told me, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing me good news, I seized him and killed him at Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more, when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and destroy you from the earth? And David commanded his young men, and they killed them, and cut off their hands and feet, and hanged them beside the pool at Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner. At Hebron. Once again, David is showing justice toward his allies, those who thought they were fighting on his side but broke the law of God and shamed the kingdom by, take, by assassinating a king. And David, once again, didn't just reward them for their superficial personal loyalty to him, but he exercised justice, and God did that through him. Now look in verse 1 through 5 of chapter 5, and you'll see that all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be the shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron, and king made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years at Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. So God's grace was extended to David. God brought together all of Israel to bow to David, the new king. And now we have a united kingdom. Now, we're going to postpone till next week to look at C, which completes chapter 5. Because here, David works through the afflictions from unbelievers. We're going to see that David takes on the Jebusites and the Philistines. And this is sort of the final act of God, taking care not only of the hypocrites within the church, taking care of those who are pretending to be our allies, but really undermining us because of their wickedness. But also God's promises are going to extend through our encounter with those who intentionally 
oppose God and His people, the Jebusites and the Philistines. But those, that section is too important to try to complete in two minutes. So you can see, then, the main point here, that David, the servant of the Lord, inquires of the Lord, seeks His will. God is working out His purposes. He had promised to Abraham 800 years before that He would give this land as a kingdom to Israel. And David now is God's appointed man to do so. And God is keeping His promises through all this opposition. You know how Jesus came and worked through all manner of opposition. Knucklehead disciples, people who didn't understand Him, religious opponents, military, political opponents, everything against Jesus Christ. And God took Him right through the cross and the grave, right to a resurrected body and ascension into heaven. And gentlemen, this is what He's going to do with you. He's got a purpose for you just like he had for his own son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the, David's greater son. And we're in Jesus Christ so that we're Christians, Christianos. We're little anointed ones. God's doing the same thing with us regardless of the opposition. He's taking us through. He's promised us. And he's going to see us through to the very end of the day. Glory be to his name. So as we go out today, let's go with confidence. We're not just mere men. We're the sons of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing story of your servant David and how it encourages us to see that as imperfect as David was, you eventually sent the perfect son of David who perfectly accomplished your will and brought you pleasure and us salvation. And we pray today that you'll help us to trust you, that as we walk with you and inquire of the Lord, that you will give the answers that we need and that you will take care of all of your and our enemies, and you will vindicate us in the day to come. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.